The Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School convened a gathering in March 2017 titled Taking Our Meds Faithfully, Christian Engagements with Psychiatric Medication, supported by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We invite you to join us for some of these conversations. My name is Warren Kinghorn. I'm a faculty member here at Duke Divinity School, co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. It's my really great pleasure to be sitting here with Professor John Swinton, who's the Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies and Professor of Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's here with us for a conference on Taking Our Meds Faithfully, Christian Engagements with Psychiatric Medication. Uh, John, it's really a pleasure to have you back at Duke. Thank you for being here, be here with us. Um, this conference uh, that uh, we're all here as a part of is, is really thinking about how can Christians think, act, practice faithfully with regard to psychiatric medication. And that raises questions of how Christians relate to people with mental health problems, how Christians think about mental health more broadly. You have had a long-standing interest in this area. This is the center of a lot of your work. And I wondered if you could start just by giving a bit of a history of how did you come to be interested in these questions? Well, uh, my background's in mental health nursing, so I, I nursed for 16 years in a, in a variety of different contexts, from what was then called chronic care to acute care, which now called like, all sorts of different things. Like, um, but I spent most of my early life um, working alongside people with uh, mental health challenges. And then I retrained and I worked specifically with people with intellectual disabilities. So for most of my early professional life, I was with people whom society considered to be different, and usually that difference was perceived as negative. Uh, but also, uh, by being alongside people uh, at that kind of what was very formative years in my life, I found myself formed in a very particular way, to look at human missing in, in a way that perhaps if I'd done, been doing other things, I wouldn't have seen some of the things that I can now see. So I, was, I, that, I look upon that as my place of formation, where I became something of the person I am and, and learned how to look at people in a quite particular way. And then I spent some time, um, but I left nursing and I decided I was going to go into the uh, ministry. Uh, and well, first of all, I worked as a mental health chaplain. Uh, well, I was a community health chaplain working with people coming out of long-term uh, mental health care into society. And my job was to help them to find a, a spiritual home, to find a place where they could... You know, be accepted, find a sense of belonging, and have the spiritual needs nurtured and developed. Uh, and that was quite revealing because churches can be equally as excluding the society. So the fact that you go to a religious place doesn't mean to say that you're going to find any more acceptance than in other places. So I learned a lot from that as well. And then in the end, I was ordained into my position as a, a lecturer in practical theology at Aberdeen University. And so if, the, uh, if my nursing and chaplaincy was my place of formation, my academic life is my place of vocation, where I kind of sit back and think, well, where is God in the midst of all this stuff that I've learned and that's shaped and formed me over the years? Tell me more about some stories or, or ideas about how your nursing formation continues to, continues to inform the person that you are and the way that you engage theology in the church. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's quite straightforward in the sense that, uh, well, I'm a practical theologian, and, and practical theology has to do with um, theological reflection on the practices of the church and the practices of the world, the beauty of enabling faithful discipleship. Um, 
But my beginning place as a practical theologian is not simply with um, uh, the text and tradition, it's actually with human experience. And it cannot be because that's where I've been all of my life and that's where I, I can, uh, my major theological questions come from. So if you think about it this way, if you're a systematic theologian, you, you may go to the tradition. Uh, you'll explore history, tradition, doctrine, uh, and ask certain questions around that. Uh, of, the, of the tradition to try to understand and deepen your understanding of God. From my perspective as a practical theologian, I have a whole different set of questions to ask to the tradition, because these are questions that come from the lives of people with mental health problems, the lives of people with profound disabilities, lives of people with advanced dementia. These are valid questions that very rarely are asked of the tradition simply because of the way in which theologians tend to be formed. So contemporary theologians tend to be academic theologians who have a set of questions, but sometimes they're quite different. And so I think that the, uh, what I bring is a different set of questions because I come from a different set of uh, histories uh, and I have a different formation. Tell me what people with mental health problems have taught you uh, as a theologian, as a minister, as a nurse, about ways to engage the Christian tradition faithfully. Well, I think what I've learned most is that uh, there's no single thing that we can hold up as paradigmatic of what it means to be a human being. To be human is to, as a, a broad range of possibilities that you experience your humanness through your body, you experience your humanness through the way that you encounter your mind and the way you interpret things, you experience your, your humanness through your community. So we're all shaped and formed to be human beings in different ways, which is why you know, the body of Christ is always all about difference, it's never about sameness, and sometimes we try to make it sameness. So I think what I've learned from being alongside people with mental health problems is how to recognize and respect difference, even if that difference is sometimes deeply dissonant, because that, dis dis that difference expresses something fundamentally important about the way people are experiencing the world and experiencing their humanness. What are some of the experiences that people have in relationship to church, in relationship to church service attendance, in relationship to participation in church communities that are helpful or perhaps not helpful? That's no, interesting. Because I'm, at the moment I'm doing some qualitative research looking at people, uh, Christians, with severe mental health challenges. And thus far I've interviewed probably around 30 people. And each one, almost to a man and to a woman, have said the same thing. Churches can be really helpful, churches can be really destructive. And the destructive dimension comes when churches try to explain the reasons why people have mental health problems. And so you may have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, well that's fine. But then you go into a, a church context where people have a, a whole new set of explanatory frameworks and they begin to say, well, maybe it's demon possession or maybe you haven't, you haven't prayed hard enough or maybe you should simply be looking for healing from the divine and don't take your medication and all of these things. So what you have is, is a clash of ex explanatory frameworks. Now people within churches are very often genuinely want to bring health and healing to this individual but the way in which they articulate it, it represents an explanatory framework that's not particularly helpful for these individuals. So there's a lot of exclusion, a lot of kind of uh, alienation from church communities around these key theological issues. So I think the church, like, like society, needs to rethink what, it, what it, it thinks it's saying when it asks somebody with a mental health problem uh, whether they should be healed because, in whatever way. Mm. 
How would you relate uh, this relationship of healing salvation as churches talk about it in relationship to mental health problems? Healing and salvation. Well, it's interesting because when you look at the the healing ministry of Jesus, you know, we live in a highly medicalized culture. So the temptation is to read the healing miracles biomedically, right? So you look at Jesus healing somebody with a withered hand and you think, well, Jesus is behaving just like a physician. Isn't it wonderful? He's fixed the hand. But actually, when you read Jesus' miracles theologically, which is what they're intended to be, you very often see, almost always see a different pattern. Well, Jesus is certainly, he's certainly fixing and mending things, but at the same time, he's revealing things about who he is. He's revealing things about who God is. He's revealing things about what the coming kingdom is. So the, the miracle can be a distraction because if we look at it in the wrong way because it looks as if he's, the healing is the point, but actually it's the theological message behind it that's the point. Like, now, as I say, clearly Jesus fixes and mends things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what health is. So it's much more complicated than simply taking a, a biomedical view and imposing on second century Mediterranean culture and saying we know now what that is. And so and that has implications for the way that we understand the, the healing ministry. So I, I want to follow up about the biomedical view in just a minute, but tell me more about health in a Christian context. How do you understand health or mental health, especially in relationship to the people that you know and have been Absolutely. in conversation with? I mean, there is a temptation for us to think that health is simple, that it's simply the absence of illness, right? So I have cancer, <clears throat> you have a technology, you administer technology, take away my cancer, and then I'm healthy. Um, and that would be a standard biomedical understanding, or at least the way people characterize that or caricature that. Um, but when you think about the way that health is in the Old and the New Testament, there is no word for health in that biomedical sense. That's just simply isn't, that's not the way that, that, that uh, health is articulated. One of the closest words to health is the idea of shalom. So shalom has uh, primarily to do with justice and righteousness, right relationship with God. So to be healthy is to be in right relationship with God. Um, you, know, you have subsections there of friendship and community and prosperity, but in essence, health has been in right relationship with God. And indeed, health is God. You know, in Judges, we find that the statement, Yahweh is Shalom. And Jesus talks, uh, Paul talks about Jesus as peace, as Shalom in that sense. So health is not a concept or experience, it's a relationship in that sense. So you can be deeply unhealthy in a medical sense, uh, and at the same time be extremely healthy. And you can be the world's greatest uh, athlete and be really, really unhealthy in that model of health. And I think if we're thinking that way, then what we're looking at is not simply to take away uh, people's symptoms and, uh, as a primary thing to do, but actually to ensure that no matter what experience people are going through, they have the opportunity and the means to keep their connection with God, even in the more difficult times. So you're not necessarily focusing on simply eradicating symptoms, you're focusing on holding on to and sustaining and developing relationships. So the presence of symptoms for someone who is experiencing a mental health problem may not indicate so much the absence of health. These might be two different kinds of things. Yes, and we can get them conflated and confused sometimes. Can you give an example of that? Maybe somebody who, who uh, had symptoms in our biomedical way of naming things who actually also was 
embodying health of some sort? And, and well, many of the people, I mean, the current study I'm doing just now, many of the people who are ex experiencing quite significant psychosis would have that experience. So they would have uh, a cacophony of voices and all sorts of difficulties, but still nestling in the midst of that is both a desire and sometimes a, a, a very strong ability to hold on to, to God in the midst of that. So you, you have the mystification of, of voices. And the voices are not mean, meaningless, but they are mysterious in that sense. Um, but that mystification doesn't necessarily take away their desire to continue to seek after, after God, even in the midst of that experience and I suppose one of the, one of the difficulties is, is untangling that because it, it, it can be very easy for a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anybody to conflate their desire to be with God in the midst of all these symptoms as another symptom right uh, and it's it, the key is how you can really untangle that and the beginning for the point for untangling that is, is to have a, a kind of clear understanding of what you think health looks like I heard you relate a very moving story of someone who uh, was experiencing certain kinds of symptoms and took medication, and that actually was, was complicated for this person's spiritual life. Could you would you willing to share yes. about that story? Yes, that's the story of um, Elizabeth, who um, uh, had endurance schizophrenia, uh, who had terrible voices uh, and sometimes quite beautiful voices all at the same time. But she had the delusions, hallucinations, and she really struggled. So she was quite grateful at certain points of time to have medication. Um, and the medication certainly did work because it, it took away or at least dampened down her, her symptoms. But for her, there was a huge spiritual side effect, which was that when the voices disappeared, she was profoundly lonely. So the voices had formed a significant aspect of her social circle. And even in the midst of these voices, not all of them were bad voices. And she wanted to hold on to the good voices. So she actually named some of them. She had, she had become friends with some of her voices who would defend her against the other voices. Right? And so she's left with this dilemma. At first, she's profoundly lonely because suddenly there's nothing. Yeah. And more than that, she has to grieve for people that are not there. So the, the good voices that she had a good relationship with is no longer there. And so she has to grieve for that. And how can you grieve for somebody that's not, uh, uh, that actually has, has never been there in the way that you and I might understand that without uh, people assuming that that's just another part of your psychosis? Right. And people would say, well, aren't you glad that they're gone? Well, that's right. And so the, the, the way I think I, I, I framed that was that you have a, a good therapeutic outcome, but poor soul care, because that which is fundamentally important to her wasn't fixed and mended by the taking away of symptoms. So if, you, so, go ahead. so if you think symptoms are just symptoms rather than meaningful experiences, then you miss a whole realm of what goes on in people's lives. So when, when psychiatrists like me want to reduce symptoms and prescribe medications or intervene in other ways to reduce symptoms, we need not to do it without also thinking about the meaning of those experiences for the individual and, yeah. and how that occurs. Well, you need, you need to realize that you're medicating into a narrative. You're medicating into somebody's story. And that as your medication or your practices in medication interfere or alter that story, so you interfere or alter the way that person engages with the world. And we all uh, make sense of who we are through our stories. Right? And so you could say mental health challenges disrupt our story, they certainly do. 
But so can medication if, if we don't actually listen to what that medication does. And when I say listen to, I don't mean simply other side effects that we can further medicate, which is what we oftentimes do, but actually what are the side effects of this particular medication, a practice medication? So we, we have to take neuroscience, neurobiology seriously, but you're suggesting that a, a, an account of pharmacology, an account of psychiatry, an account of mental health practice that sees us as and reducible to our brains or to our neurons, and that um, sees sees maybe mental health challenges as only neurobiological in nature, yeah. only needing pharmacological intervention, right. is a deeply short-sighted way from a Christian context to think of the human person. Yeah, and I can illustrate that because I mean, a colleague of mine, I, I listened to a lecture that he did recently, and he's a psychiatrist, and he, he said, um, I only have 20 minutes with a patient, and I spend the whole time looking at the screens in front of me trying to adjust these meds. Right? So if you can imagine being in a, uh, with another human being in an office, constantly obsessed with this computer screen and the person sitting there, then that illustrates the problem with whether it's pharmacomania. But there's a problem there if you think that you can read somebody who's in the room from their biology that's on a screen. recommend placing medications in the context of story and narrative. Yes. Say a bit more about how that can happen faithfully. Well, I think you've got to realize, to begin with, that uh, human biology is not an independent entity. It's not something that we can understand apart from God. So you know, if you look at the Genesis account of creation, God creates human beings out of the dust. He blows his nephesh into them. The, uh, the, the, we are inexorably biological creatures, but we are inexorably theological creatures. There's no time when God is apart from us, no, no time when God is apart from biology. So when we engage in the practices of um, pharmaceutical intervention, it's a theological act, it's a spiritual act. And so therefore it has to have a telos, it has, to have, it has a, a goal that is in line with the movement of the nephesh in, in, in human beings. Right? So if it's simply to control you and to dumb down things that may be profoundly spiritually important, then the medication, and perhaps that's the medicator, is acting unfaithfully. But if uh, actually the act of medicating enables you in your bodily existence to be more aware and more uh, have the, the nephesh uh, dynamic more openly uh, available to you, then the med would act faithfully. It would enable you to do something that your natural biology in a fallen world just can't do. Could you give me a story of a, a story that you've heard or a, a person that you've uh, interviewed who is taking medication and where that's been a beautiful thing and done faithfully? Well, I, I think of, of one gentleman that I worked alongside who experienced uh, double depression. And so he, um, which, which is, I'm telling you, you're a psychiatrist, you should be telling me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it means that basically he's dyslamic. He's, he's in different levels of depression uh, all the time, right? So his happier times is when other people go to the psychiatrist to get help. Um, and he talks about the way in which he, uh, he talks about three levels of depression, but he, uh, he talks about the way in which when he's at the, his lowest, it's impossible for him to find God. He tries and he tries, and his greatest fear that he is that he 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 dies, not being able to get back in contact with with God in that sense, and there's nothing he can do there. And so, so what he says is that when I'm in that state, I need drugs, I need medication, and he describes it in metaphorical terms like this: that um, 
uh, if you think of spiritual, people's spiritual life is like a wall. Uh, and all Christians are, are climbing up this wall by various means for prayer, meditation, whatever way you are, you're moving towards this, this wall, this goal of being in contact with, with God in whatever way. And he says, I can't climb the wall, but if I get medication, then that can take me, help me get to the top of that wall. Now, he says that, you know, uh, everybody gets there by different means. The fact that he is, he is uh, uh, engaging in pharmacological mountaineering, if you like, uh, doesn't invalidate, and it definitely doesn't make it any less theological, because all that we do with the bodies is, is theological in that sense. Um, so that was him, and that was, that was the way he framed his experience encounter with uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, medication, because without it, he really struggled. Can you talk about, um, that's really helpful, thank you. Can, you. can you talk about limits on use of medication in that way? So, for example, would any substance that increases someone's sense of connection to God, and by virtue of acting on their nefesh, their, their ensouled body, would, uh, would be a theological act? Um, is there any limits on that? Well, I think you've got, if I can stick, hold, hold on to that story, you've got to be very careful because he wasn't just saying, I want self-fulfillment or I don't want to actualize my spirituality. He was saying that he wants to get in touch with Jesus. Right? So for him, the metaphor of the top of the wall was to get in touch with Jesus. Uh, and so the, the parameters there would be in that, that that's, that's the case. The second thing is that for him, uh, the top of the wall wasn't a place of ecstasy. It was simply a place where he could reach out his hand and feel that God was able to touch him. Now, of course, God was always able to touch him, but he could feel that, uh, that space. Right? In your broader work, you talk about um, that, that all of us are called to become disciples. Those of us that carry diagnoses, those of us that don't. Could you yeah. say more about that? Well, I think one of the mistakes, and I say that with a small m, that we make in t the way that in which we frame uh, mental health issues in relation to the church is we frame them in terms of pastoral care. And so we think or assume that what we need to do is to find ways of, of caring for these people, whatever that means. I think, although pastoral care is important for all of us, I think we're much better to frame it in terms of discipleship. So the question is, if somebody in your congregation is really quite unwell and has, having to say, for example, a psychotic episode, uh, and has enduring psychotic episodes over time, the question is, what's their vocation? What has God called them to do and this congregation to do for them in relation to their discipleship and their calling to do a particular thing? You know, because all of us have a vocation. The fact that you have um, a, a mental health ch a challenge doesn't mean you don't have a vocation. It just means that you know, your vocation looks perhaps different from other people. And I think if we shifted across from pastoral care to, to discipleship as a general resource, which means that it's no longer just a specialist enterprise for those who are interested in such things, but it's actually something that's central to what it means to be the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ can't be the body of Christ if it keeps kicking people out. And not something that clinicians have a particular, particularly strong reason to weigh into. This is a broader issue for the church. That's right. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. And so that, that locates it differently. Well, of course, people will still need pastoral care, so I'm not suggesting that. And I also, uh, I'm also not suggesting that psychiatry has no real, I'm just simply saying that this, the church has a different story to bring. That story is equally as important as all the other stories. But I think if we reposition uh, our thinking 
and begin to look at people through that lens, then we have a range of options that's not available to us uh, if we simply push people to one side. Well, what advice would you give to clinicians who are Christian, who want to provide um, responsible care for people with mental illness, who want to be faithful um, therapists and psychiatrists and other clinicians, um, and, and want to do so in the context of this vision of the church that you're naming here? Yeah. Well, when I was young, we used to have this road safety adverb, which was a little squirrel that would run to the side of the road and, and stop you from crossing and saying, stop, look, listen. And I think that's it. So stop, take, a, take a, a step back, begin to really look differently. Take that, if you think about that narrative dimension that I've just illustrated a little bit there, think about you, that you're speaking into somebody's narrative, a narrative that actually is fundamental to how they see the world and how they see themselves. And then begin to listen in the light of that, uh, even if it's something as apparently technical as giving somebody medication, actually for Christians, it's a deeply spiritual and a deeply theological act. When you begin to see that, then even the simple gestures of day-to-day -day, uh, administration of medication become something different. They become not quite sacramental, but they certainly uh, become a, a visible sign of an invisible grace. Thank you. Last question I have for you is, how is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news for people with mental health problems? It's good news for everybody. Yeah, I don't like to. I don't like to think that uh, there's any different good news from uh, anybody else because I don't think that people with mental health challenges are radically different. Jesus is good for everybody. John, thank you, thank you very much for your um, participation here with us this weekend. Um, it's really great to have you here with us. Thank you very much. No, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. For further interviews and other resources on Christian engagements with psychiatric medications, please visit our website, tmc.divinity.duke.edu.